Hello, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. That's the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and I swear I'm not recycling jokes on purpose. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course, the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash how, how good it is, pod. Listen, if, if, you, if you currently care for an older loved one, well, navigating coronavirus can be intimidating, but AARP can help with tips on how to create a plan. So visit aarp.org slash caregiving. That's aarp.org slash caregiving. That's brought to you by AARP. And the Ad Council. How about a little trivia for ye today? Well, according to the online retailer, The Sound of Vinyl, what is the Elton John hit that's been covered the most times? Elton's got a lot of hits, and of course, many of them have been covered, but one of them far outstrips the others in terms of the number of covers that have been done. I'll have the answer to that question and some of the runners-up near the end of the show. Now, I I don't usually cover songs by the Beatles, largely because they've been so thoroughly documented that there isn't usually a lot that I can bring to the table, but I'm not above talking about their solo efforts. And yet, this is only my second solo Beatle tune. Today, we're looking at Cold Turkey, which is the second of John Lennon's post-Beatle singles coming just a couple of months after Give Peace a Chance. Now, there are two different stories out there with regard to the inspiration for this song. The first and more popular one is that John Lennon was literally writing about drug withdrawal. Cold turkey is a phrase that refers to abruptly quitting any drug habit, whether it's nicotine, alcohol, or other drugs. And if you do it that way, well, it usually wreaks all kinds of havoc on your body because you have to suddenly get adjusted to not having that substance in your body. And... Usually it's a pretty miserable experience, often involving sleeplessness, cramps all over, sweating, shaking. Look, it's not good, okay? Anyway, both John Lennon and Yoko Ono spent a brief period starting in 1968, during which they used and became addicted to heroin. According to an article by Jan Wenner from 1970, Lennon said that they weren't injecting it, but rather sniffing a little when they were in real pain. But that pain largely came in the form of people giving both him and Yoko Ono a hard time all the time. However, by the summer of 1969, they decided that they were done with it. But here's the problem. At that time, drug addiction was still very poorly understood. In fact, it was often classified as a kind of psychosis. So there wasn't a lot of guidance with regard to how to treat it. Even methadone was still in the experimental stage when it came to treating opioid addiction. So going cold turkey was practically the only way to do it if you wanted to kick the habit. So that's what both Lennon and Ono did, and his experience is what inspired the song. Now there is another theory out there that on its surface seems to be believable, but there's a huge caveat attached to it. Lennon's personal assistant in the 1970s, the late 1970s, was a guy named Fred Seaman. Now, personal assistant is kind of a loose term there because it really meant that Fred was a guy who stuck around Lennon's office and would occasionally bring something up to Lennon's apartment, but he didn't have a lot of face time with his employer. And after Lennon died, Seaman stole a bunch of items from Lennon's apartment and was indicted for second-degree grand larceny. 
for which he pleaded guilty. Seaman's story, which he's related in a book about Lennon that he published in 1991, is that John and Yoko were both laid low by about a food poisoning after eating Christmas leftovers, including cold turkey. Seaman's story went on to say that Lennon thought people would laugh at him if they knew the truth, so he made up the withdrawal story. But, as I noted a minute ago, Seaman didn't have a lot of direct contact with Lennon, he wasn't working for him until about 1978, and he didn't even mention it when he was interviewed for Albert Goldman's 1988 biography of John Lennon, which had plenty of accuracy problems, but Lennon's heroin use wasn't one of them. So while food poisoning can sometimes have some of the same symptoms as withdrawal, they're not nearly the same thing. Now, while this was Lennon's second non beatles single, it is the first one for which he takes sole songwriting credit, since Give Peace a Chance is credited to Lennon and McCartney. If you look at later releases of Give Peace a Chance, and I'm talking about reissues after he died, it shows John Lennon only in the writing credit. In a Norman Phillips' biography, Lennon is said to have expressed regret about it, although Ian McDonald's book about the Beatles says he did it as a thank you to Paul McCartney for helping him to get the ballad of John and Yoko laid down quickly. All right, back to Cold Turkey. So Lennon recorded some acoustic demos of the song in early September of 1969. This first one is a pretty much a straight run-through, uh, but check out the way he's warbling on his voice. version you can find on the um, 2004 compilation of demos and live tracks called Acoustic. Now the second version has double tracked vocals and the first hints of that iconic guitar line and still another version had Yoko Ono adding backing vocals including some cackles and screams. Now given that the other two didn't really have anything like that he might have been inspired to add them himself to the final version. It's generally thought that John presented the song to the Beatles not only as a potential track for the Abbey Road album, but as the band's next single. The band turned him down, which is not unusual because all four members had to agree to record a song before it got done. But it's also possible that Lennon brought it to them knowing full well that they would reject it so he could use it himself as a Plastic Ono band track. The song made its debut on September 13, 1969, when John Lennon performed in Toronto for what later became the Live Piece in Toronto 1969 album. The song was credited to the Plastic Ono Band, which at the time was Lennon, Yoko Ono, Eric Clapton, Klaus Vorman on bass, and Alan White on drums. A couple of years later, White would join the progressive rock band Yes. Klaus Vorman has gone on to produce a big pile of hits, and I'm sure that Eric Clapton fellow has done okay since those days. It's a little tough to hear, but Yoko intro introduces the song first as the newest song written by John, and John, in fact, says, and you'll hear this too, that the band has never played the song as a group before that performance. Never done this number before, so best of luck. It's called Cold Turkey. 
course, Yoko is going to contribute some vocalizations to the song. this a lot of it sounds less random than you hear in other live performances I've heard I've seen and as I mentioned earlier I think it was his inspiration for the vocalizations he does on the single all right like I said earlier this the song was really new certainly the band hadn't played it as a group before except during a rehearsal shortly before the show in fact if you watch the Toronto footage you'll see that Lennon's reading the lyrics from a sheet that Yoko is holding in front of him even though Clapton's playing, we still don't have that guitar lift just yet, but he's getting a better handle on the way he wants the vocals to sound. The Jan Wenner article quotes Lennon as saying he was literally sick for hours right up until the performance, so he might have been channeling some of that energy too. About 10 days later, Lennon took the recordings to Abbey Road Studios uh, to mix the album. Part of this mixing involved removing a lot of Yoko Ono's vocals and Eric Clapton's backing vocals. Now. Clapton didn't sing on Cold Turkey, but you can see that Yoko is nearly absent except for during the guitar solos. That's the same performance. Now, it was just a few days after that that the Plastic Ono Band took a shot at a genuine studio recording of the song. The band's lined up, lineup was pretty much the same, except for Ringo Starr playing drums instead of Alan White. The session took place at Abbey Road Studios, which was still just called EMI Studios then, and they recorded 26 takes before giving up. A few days later, on September 28th, they tried again at Trident Studios, and Lennon finally got the sound he wanted. Now we have Clapton's riff, which is just agonizing. You've got Ringo's drums and Vorman's bass just right up front, crowding you into a corner. And as you get toward the end with the screaming and the howling, it doesn't gain echo, but it's got a different quality, like he's in a small, bare room. So the next day, a rough mix was made at Abbey Road with different vocals, and about a week later, some overdubs were added in, and that was about it for the single mix. The record was released in the United States on October 20th, 1969, and four days later in the UK. If you look at a copy of the original single, it's got Play Loud printed in big letters near the spindle hole. 
The song peaked at number 30 in the United States and at number 14 in the UK, which came as a disappointment to Lennon, but he had to know that this track could potentially alienate Beatles fans. It also managed to crack the top 20 in Canada and the Netherlands, but that's about it, really. Now, part of the issue might also be that the song itself was misunderstood. At least, that was Lennon's theory. Here's a clip from an interview he and Yoko did with Andy Peoples on the BBC just a couple of days before his death. November 69, Cold Turkey, which was top 20 in, in the UK and got to number 30 in America, I think. Yeah, it was, was banned here as well. What they thought th- it was a pro-drug song. What was it to you, John? Was it, it was something a- that was very important? Yeah, because I've always expressed what I've been feeling or thinking at the time, however badly or not, you know, from early Beatle records on. It became more conscious later. So I was just writing the experience I'd had of withdrawing from heroin and saying, this is what I thought when I was withdrawing, you know. But also musically, it was very uh, interesting. I mean, yeah, Eric Clapton was on that too. Uh, yes, and also we did attempt uh, a few musically advanced, interesting things in it. Yeah, Mark Boland said it was mm-hmm. the only new thing that had happened since the original Beatles when it came out. But I wasn't thinking I'm going to make a new sound. But it was pretty what they call minimal now, just bass, drums and guitar. But it was and banned in America? It was banned because it referred to drugs. To me, it was a rock and roll version of The Man with the Golden Arm. You know, it's like banning The Man with the Golden Arm because it showed Frank Sinatra suffering from drug withdrawal. To ban the record is the same thing. It's like banning the movie because it shows reality. Lennon also played the song at a uh, UNICEF benefit concert in London in December of 1969. And you can hear that as a bonus track on the Sometime in New York City album. Now, Billy Preston was playing piano during that concert, but it got lost in the mix. So Nicky Hopkins did some piano overdubs on the album. Uh, And Lennon performed the song with Elephant's Memory in the summer of 1972 at another fundraiser in New York's Madison Square Garden. That concert became the Live in New York City album, which was released in 1986. The single in the meantime finally made it to an album in 1975 when Shaved Fish was released. That was a compilation of all his U.S. singles up to that point, except for Stand By Me, which had just been released a short time earlier, and that would be Lennon's last album on Apple Records. There are a couple of covers of the song out there, including the instrumental version from 1970 by Freddie Hubbard that I was playing at the top of the show. But I think the most interesting one comes from Cheap Trick, uh, which they recorded for the 1994 Lennon tribute album, Working Class Hero. The verses are very low, almost acoustic in their sound, and gradually builds each time to a full-on assault in the chorus and the instrumental breaks, and then finally devolves into this kind of organized chaos for the last two minutes, including one point where you think the song is nearly over, and they just ramp it up again. And Rick Nielsen doesn't even bother to mimic Clapton's guitar line because he's got his own thing going on.
quiet part actually reminds me a little bit of a sweet Jane. Who knew? All right, now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you which of Elton John's many hit has been covered more times than any other. Well, I'll confess, my guess was wrong, but at least I made it into the top ten. So, here are those ten according to thesoundofvinyl.com. In the number 10 position would be this one, Tiny Dancer from Madman Across the Water, 1971, has 18 covers. Blue jean baby, LA lady. I'm not going to play all of them, I'm just going to let Tiny Dancer run. Number 9 would be That's What Friends Are For, a single that he uh, cut in 1985 with Dionne Warwick and a couple of others, has 19 covers to it, who knew? In the number eight position would be 1973's Daniel from Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. That's been covered 20 times. How about that? In number seven, we have another single only from 1976, his duet with Kiki D, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. That's been covered 21 times. Then the next two are both from 1973's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. The first one with 22 covers is Candle in the Wind. Now, Sound of Vinyl did not enumerate, so I don't know if his own cover of Candle in the Wind counts as one of those 22. And then the title track, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, has been covered 26 times. In the number four position, we have Rocket Man from 1972's Honky Chateau album. That's been covered 30 times. The number three song, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, from the Lion King original soundtrack, 1994. That's been covered 33 times. This one came as a surprise to me. From 1976's Blue Moves album, Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word. That's been covered 42 times. But the number one song, by far, with 78 covers got to go all the way back to 1970 from the self-titled Elton John album and it would be this one it's a little bit funny this feeling inside your song covered 78 times what was my guess I, I was going with candle in the wind And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, well, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, well, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or... You can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at How Good It Is. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thank you, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we get to meet Mr. Blue Sky. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.